This is Africa Digest. It is 1700 Africa where we give you news from an African perspective. We are broadcasting to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. You can find us on 9625 kilohertz on the Tiruanata Bandif in Southern Africa. My name is Spumelele Zondi. I'm with Onelenzinti, Hussani Matabula and Mosibudi Makura. The top stories. The British government issues a travel warning to its citizens following what it says is a potential terror activities in South Africa. Nigerian authorities continue to look for girls who were abducted by Boko Haram insurgents. In economics, a Chad signs a deal with the Glencore to restructure more than a billion US dollars in debt. And in sports, the Mercedes Formula One team confident Lewis Hamilton will sign a new contract with the team. But first, the news with Onele. Thank you, Spoo. Authorities in the Democratic Republic of Congo have unveiled an electronic voting machine that will be used in key elections this year, despite accusations that the technology could skew the outcome. The Independent National Electoral Commission says machine is essential for conducting presidential, legislative and local elections due on December 23. President Joseph Kabila, in power since 2001, refused to step down in 2016 after his two-term in office, the maximum permitted under the Constitution, expired. The influential Roman Catholic Church brokered an accord under which Kabila could remain in power, provided new elections were held in 2017. A new date was set for December this year, but Kabila, whose election in 2011 was stained by allegations of massive fraud, has yet to state clearly whether he will step aside. The United States has meanwhile said voting machines could undermine the credibility of the polls. Nigerian President Muhammadu Buhari has ordered several of his ministers to go to a town in the north of the country where dozens of schoolgirls were reportedly abducted on Monday at the town of Dabchi. Nigerian military officials say up to 70 girls were found abandoned after the vehicle in which they were being transported broke down. The BBC's Stephanie Hagerty reports. The number of children missing is anywhere between 51 and 111, according to differing accounts from Yobe state government and police. And the number of those rescued is even less clear. Late last night, the office of the governor of Yobe state said the army had rescued some of the school children from the terrorists who abducted them. It was the first time they acknowledged that a kidnapping had taken place. There are unconfirmed reports that two girls may have been killed. Mozambican authorities are being urged to set up a com- commission of inquiry into the garbage disaster on the outskirts of the capital Maputo, where 17 people were killed and many injured. Residents surrounding the Hulene dump are still trying to pick up the pieces after the 15-meter-high pile of waste collapsed on their houses due to heavy rains on Monday. Prior to the collapse, authorities had asked residents to leave the illegally built houses in the impoverished area of the capital. Member of the Anglican Church, Deacon Langa, we are following the news, you know, and uh, that's the number that we still got of 17 deaths. The authorities, actually, um, yesterday there was a, a TV show a program where some analysts were there commenting 
you know, and well, the, the municipality took the responsibility. However, some analysts proposed that a commission of inquiry be set up in order to define what sorts of responsibilities lays upon the rule. You know, so the municipality, yes, says uh, we assume the responsibility. However, it must be said what kind of responsibility uh, falls under the municipality. The Kenya Red Cross Society has launched an appeal for over 100 million U.S. dollars to support at least 1.4 million people who are faced with starvation due to prolonged drought in the country. Data from the United Nations Children's Agency, UNICEF, indicates that at least 3.9 people are food insecure, up to up from 3.4 million people last year. Kenya declared the drought a national disaster in February last year across the Horn of Africa region. 22.9 people are affected by the drought. Secretary General at Kenya Red Cross, Abbas Galet. We can see some counties that are now getting into the tipping point and that are getting into, into a full-blown drought situation. So what we are trying to say here is that we would need to respond before this tipping point and before things become worse than they already are. And lastly, 26 Congolese refugees at a fast-growing camp in western Uganda are reported to have died from acute diarrhea in just three days. Tens of thousands of people have fled as an upsurge of fighting in the east of the Democratic Republic of Congo this year. Many of them arriving weak and unwell at Ugandan camps that are struggling to accommodate them. Channel African News, I am Onelianzinsi. Thank you very much, Onele. You're listening to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, where we give you news from an African perspective. It is 17.06 Central African time. The British government has issued a travel warning to its citizens in South Africa following what it says is a potential terror activity in the country. In a post published on its official travel advice page, the government warns that British citizens in particular are targets and at risk of kidnapping for financial gain. The advisory follows reports that South Africa police and intelligence agencies have linked the disappearance of two British nationals in the country to a cell phone with ties to the global terror group ISIS. The two whose names have been withheld by authorities are understood to have been kidnapped while on holiday in the KwaZulu-Natal province. Channel Africa's Kumbero Munjarara spoke to Professor Mike Hugh, terrorism expert, about the travel warning and whether it has merit. The um, travel warnings are normally issued, uh, you know, regarding every country in, and also in Africa. And this is not the first time that there's been warnings against terrorism. Previously, the U.S. Embassy also, or um, the consulate also did that. But, you know, I, I find it a bit strange. We know that um, many of the organizations, including the Islamic State, etc., uh, have, have stated that, um, especially British and U.S. and allied targets, especially the embassies, of course, are targets, and we can assume the Israeli embassy as well. Those are high-risk areas, but, you know, to talk of terrorism in public places, well, and, and, and unless um, they specifically target British citizens uh, in an air British 
overseas aircraft, I don't know, but you know, I, I very much doubt. Um, the risk of terrorism is, in my view, relatively small com- compared to the risk of crime or being caught up in, um, in violent protest action at, at local government level. I think those are the high-risk areas, and, and we agree. But that, that, is, that, is, that will be true for, for everybody, not only for specific citizens. Now, the advisory follows reports that police and intelligence agencies have linked the disappearance of a Cape Town couple to a cell with ties to the global terror group ISIS. Is the UK government making a mountain out of a molehill here, Prof, or does it have merit in its warning? Look, unless they've got information that, that we haven't seen here publicly at least, I think they are perhaps overstating the case. Um, you know, kidnappings are normally quite regular in places like Mozambique, etc. Yeah, we have some, but um, it's mostly for financial gain. Uh, I can't remember when last we had a, uh, if ever had a, had a, t- a kidnapping where um, members of a terrorist group, you know, uh, certain claims like release of prisoners and that type of thing, uh, or aircraft hijacking threats. So I would say at, at this stage, uh, you know, this is just, just one... Um, example that they're using and one should also take into account that there, there, there has been a problem, this we know, with South African identity documents and, and, and so forth that are forged, but the, the new documents are supposed to be more foolproof and hence it will, should be, should eventually, whenever that comes to, a, to an end, be more secure than the, the current documents uh, which are sometimes used by people. Now the suspect uh, Saif Idan, Aslam Delvecchio and Fatima Patel uh, remain at the center of uh, this uh, high-level investigation as they face charges related to terrorism, abduction and possibly murder. Does the fact that Hawks counter-terrorism operatives are souped on them speak to the effectiveness of our counter-terrorism strategy do you think? Well, well sure. I, I know in the, in the past there have been a lot of criticisms regarding especially uh, the state intelligence agencies that they are not paying enough attention to the threats of terrorism and that uh, that especially the Islamic State is posing a threat. Now, we do know that um, since the Islamic State has been so, somewhat rerouted in uh, in uh, Iraq and uh, possibly uh, to a large extent also in Syria, there have been attacks linked to them in, in, in Africa. But yeah, so far, I don't think they've really come up with major evidence that, uh, you know, there are are sleeper cells here, excepting, as I said, for the misuse of South African uh, passports or ID documents. But uh, I think at this stage, you know, either from that side or from, if one wants to put it this way, from the right-wing side, I think, they are relatively dormant. And, and I don't see that as a major threat, excepting possibly the threat against embassies. But, but that goes for all African countries. We had it in Kenya, we had it in uh, Uganda. So, you know, that, that could happen. But that, that, that threat applies to every African country, whether they are U.S., British or Israeli embassies. That is Professor Mike Hughes, South African terrorism expert, talking to Kumbero Munjarere. Now, good governance activities and members of the opposition in Zambia are saying President Joseph Kabila of the Democratic Republic of Congo should be isolated in the Southern African Development Community region and the rest of Africa for overstaying in office. The activists have also condemned President Edgar Lungu for entertaining the Congolese leader despite the conflict in his country. Hilda Kekelo reports. The Congolese leader left Zambia on Sunday after a two-day official visit government says was to cement relations between the two countries. 
During the visit, President Kabila admitted that there were still some political challenges that are synonymous with any country practicing democracy, but that they are being worked on. That assurance has not assured his critics. Leader of the opposition in parliament, Jack Mwimbu, has condemned President Lungu for hosting the Congolese leader despite what is happening in the DRC that has led to thousands of refugees seeking asylum in Zambia. He described President Kabila as the butcher of the Congo who should not be supported by any right-thinking person. The Honorable Member charged that Mr. Kabila is an illegitimate leader because his term of office ended in 2016. But Vice President and Leader of Government Business Inongewina said the DRC President came to Zambia to strengthen bilateral relations between the two countries. In the response conveyed by Higher Education Minister Professor Nkanduluo, she said the visit was also aimed at learning on how Zambia has achieved the peaceful nation status. She said there was nothing wrong in what President Lungu did in hosting his Congolese counterpart. We are now at a time when the world has advanced and we are reminded about partnerships, we are reminded about cooperation, and I see that well-meaning standards, not those that want to create things in their own heads, are very happy that as a country we are supporting our neighboring country and ensuring that there is peace in that country. So it's only defeating that His Excellency President David also emulates the previous presidents in trying to help where need is. Yes. Mr. Speaker, let me also remind the Honorable Member of Parliament that we are not in diplomacy supposed to be talking ill of other presidents and other countries. Yeah. Meanwhile, good governance activist McDonald Chipenzi has expressed disappointment that despite deputizing the SADC organ on politics, defense and security, the Troika, President Lungu hosted and entertained President Kabila with presidential decorum. He says the DRC leader does not deserve such because of the treatment he is subjecting his own people to, many of who are now living in refugee camps in Zambia. But it seems like Zambia is enjoying what is happening in the DRC. The conflict in DRC could be benefiting some of our colleagues in Zambia, especially at leadership level. Because if truly it was bringing more suffering than benefit, we would have seen or heard or read strong statements coming from Zambian leadership towards the leadership in Kinshasa. Mr. Chipenzi has further accused the Southern African Development Community of doing nothing to resolve regional conflicts such as the war in the Democratic Republic of Congo. He says it is disheartening to see how the Sadiq region has remained tolerant to President Kabila and yet millions of Congolese women and children are suffering. He says in serious democracies, President Kabila would have suffered isolation, economic and travel sanctions within the Sadiq region and on the African continent. When you look at even what happened in 
Zimbabwe in 2008 and the response from uh, from Sadi. Uh, and you look at what happened in in, in the Gambia and the response from Equal. These are similar situations. But look at how Equal responded and how Sadiq responded. So we, for me, I expect that Sadiq uh, should not allow, for example, unconstitutional stay of a president in power. The DRS situation, DRS situation is a clear testimony of Sadiq's failure to resolve the political and electoral, you know, electrical, electoral conflict in a member state. You have what happened uh, in, in, in Zimbabwe called the coup, the soft coup. Uh, you have what happened in South Africa, which is also uh, a, a, a more or less like a coup. But what is Sadiq doing? What is Sadiq saying? Very quiet. And he has actually embraced some of these unconstitutional changes. The activist believes the Sadiq region will continue to be a laughing stock on the African continent if not the entire world, from a soft coup in Zimbabwe to a presidential recall vote by a political party in South Africa and now to an unconstitutional president in the DRC. Reporting for Channel Africa from Livingston in Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. This is indeed a joyous night. We are delighted by the overwhelming support for the African National Congress. To the people of South Africa and the world, this is indeed a joyous night for the human spirit. Your help and apartheid. This year, 2018, marks 100 years since the birth of South Africa's first democratically elected president, Nelson Kholihlahla Mandela. Join Channel Africa, South Africa's international public service radio station, as we celebrate a centenary of the life and times of Madiba. Join us in a year-long broadcast campaign in honor of Nelson Mandela's legacy through a variety of informative radio programs. Channel Africa, celebrating 100 years of Nelson Mandela from an African perspective. Let us It is 1718 Central African time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, where we give you news from an African perspective. My name is Spomela Lezondi. I'm with you until 1800 hours Central African time. Now, South Africa ranks the ninth corrupt country in relation to other sub-Saharan African countries. Nations in the top 10 include Senegal, Botswana and Ghana. This is according to Transparency International's Corruption Perceptions Index. The survey ranks about 100 80 countries by their perceived levels of public sector corruption according to experts and business people. It also indicates that an increased exposure of corruption is attributed to a more vocal and active citizenry, although the lack of prosecution remains a major obstacle. For more on this, we are now joined on the line by Leanne Govensami, Head of Legal and Investigations at Corruption Watch. Hello and thank you very much for joining us. Good afternoon, thank you. Um, now, Lian, briefly tell us about the index. How is it conducted? Look, this is a corruption perceptions index, and um, it looks it, it it involves the views of academics, 
various um, individuals selected um, in order to gauge the perception that people have about corruption in a particular country. Um, and so with this index, it's, it has been found that we dropped two places since last year. Um, and, you know, given the, the nature and extent of the levels of corruption um, and the allegations that have emerged over the last year, you would think, look, it's not that much of a drop. Um, but I think you've got to see it in the context of how uh, the media, civil society has responded uh, to those allegations, how the judiciary has responded, um, and how, how strong we are uh, seen to be. Um, in addressing those allegations, even if it may not be uh, as fast as people want, the general perception is that, look, you know, there are mechanisms to address uh, those instances, um, and, and, and media can be quite free um, in raising those issues. <clears throat> mm. um, so would you then perhaps say that in countries where, let's say, media and civil society are not free, people would not be free to speak out about corruption and, and, and therefore perceptions of corruption in that country um, might be higher than they are, let's say, in the countries that you've named here? I mean, it, it, it very well could be, you know, where you, it, it's kind of um, a chicken and egg situation, you know, the media is responsible for uncovering so many allegations of corruption, so many um, of the issues that we see today, and have been and have been central to that. Um, and it could be in, in some countries that you know that is not allowed to the extent that it is here. And so maybe people, the the, the perception could be that they, the corruption levels are not high. So. You know, there's two ways of looking at it. I guess the, the real point is to say that while we have such high levels of corruption, the perception is that there are still ways in which they, those, those, those um, instances of corruption can be addressed. It can be spoken about quite freely. It can be discussed. We have a vigorous media, judiciary, civil society that are all, um, you know, kind of joined together in one cause in addressing it. Whereas in other countries, there may not be the space to either uncover or even discuss and address those instances of corruption. Mm. Um, is this an international index? Yes, it is. It is. Mm. Um, and how many countries in sub-Saharan Africa do you then um, uh, include in the index? Look, I'm not sure if the numbers of the, the, the countries are on our continent, but I think that, that almost all the countries um, in Africa have been covered with the index. All right, and then what do you make of the level of corruption in South Africa? Or, or look, corruption yeah. perception, let's put it that way. Yeah, look, you know... We have we have we have come through a period of time, or I think for the last uh, long while, where we've had so many allegations come forward. We've had so many, um, you know, um, corrupt activities at a very large scale, involving very large amounts of money. Um, and I think that while you can say that. Um, you know, our judiciary, our civil society, our media are, have been very responsive, have been very vocal. There are also institutions that have not worked to address that, and you now see them coming forward, and it, it, like the National Prosecuting Authority, for example. Um, and I think that, you know, part of the reason we would have dropped two places is that 
has, has the criminal justice system responded in the way that you would have expected um, to take action and to hold people accountable um, and to make sure that monies are recovered, that, that people go to jail, that people are fined, um, and maybe that's why you know, you're seeing that there is this drop. Uh, because in as much as you can say, look, we've been very vocal, we've spoken about these things, but has action really been taken? And that's the obligation and the duty of the criminal justice authorities. Mm. Um, and in South Africa, there is a new precedent now. Um, are we likely to see these perceptions changing in the next um, year, let's say in the next index? I mean, you would hope so. You've seen very um, uh, strong statements coming from our, our current president around addressing corruption, about strengthening institutions. Um, and you would hope that those things do in fact happen and that, you know, we would improve um, in terms of how people perceive corruption, uh, yeah. want to exist, to, to be dealt with in the country. All right, sure. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That is Leanne Govinsami. She is the head of legal and investigations at Corruption Watch. Now, Boko Haram insurgents have attacked and abducted another set of 50 girls from a Yobe state government secondary school in Dabchi in northern Nigeria. The incident is akin to the abduction of over 200 female students from Chibok in April 2014. Collins Atohangbe reports that President Muhammad Buhari has directed security forces to make sure that the girls are rescued. April 2014 has remained fresh in the memory of Nigerians being the year and month when close to 300 girls were abducted from Chibok in Borno State, northeastern Nigeria. Why there remains yet a number of the kidnapped Chibok girls to be rescued from captivity, another set of secondary school girls numbering about 50 have been abducted by Boko Haram in Dapchi, Yobe State. In an initial response to the reported abduction, the Commissioner of Police, Yobe State, Sumono Abdul Maliki, said the police has no news of any such incidents of abduction, but that when he contacted the head of the secondary school, he was told nobody was abducted within the school premises, though a few of the students were yet to be accounted for after a shooting incident which attracted the attention of the police. I have asked the principal, who is the chief executive of the school, if there were abduction right inside the school, she said no. And how many have we seen physically after the head counts, aftermath of the incident? Then we should be able to know how many of them now that are missing. Right from at this moment, I don't have any record of abduction or no abduction as at now. As at just yesterday, we had 815 students physically seen. The incident at Government Girls Science and Technology Secondary School happened on Monday night with very scanty information until one of the girls who was lucky enough to have escaped from the hands of the kidnappers narrated her ordeal. Hafsat Alawan's story gave a fresh insight into the event with a graphic description of what happened. She narrated her experience in Hausa as interpreted, confirming the incident giving credence, therefore, to what was initially thought to be a rumor. While sporadic gunshots were going on, we jumped our fence and started running out of the school. They led us to come to them for safety, saying they are Nigerian soldiers. But on coming close, we realized that they were masked, despite having their real military wares. 
Reacting to the incident, the Minister for Information, Lai Mohammed, told State House correspondents in Abuja that the President has given a directive to the security agencies to make sure that the incident does not become like the Chibok girls issue, which has left a sour taste in the memory of concerned persons across the globe. Mr. President has directed the military and other security agencies to take immediate charge and control and inform him of developments. In pursuance of the efforts to determine what is true and the extent to which people's lives have been endangered by the incident, a presidential committee which includes the Minister of Defense and the Minister of Information has embarked on a fact-finding mission to Dapshi Yobi State in northern Nigeria. With this development, it is expected that security operatives will intensify surveillance to prevent the insurgents from moving the abducted schoolgirls out of reach. From Lagos, Nigeria, I am Collins Nosa Atohengbe for Channel Africa News. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We broadcast from Johannesburg in South Africa and our main aim is to provide you with news, views, knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and listeners from around the world. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Diana Wanyonyi in Mombasa. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbara Munjarere in Johannesburg. Channel Africa, Kinshasa, Jean-Noel Bamweze. Reporting for Channel Africa from Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. It is now time for news headlines. Here's on Lentinti. President Mohamedou Buhari ordered several of his ministers to investigate the attack on the All-Girl College. DRC authorities unveil an electronic voting machine to be used in key elections. And one of the lecturers who supervised Grace Mugabe's PhD thesis is investigated by the Zimbabwe Anti-Graft Agency. Channel Africa News, I am Onelin Zinzi. It is 17.30 Central African time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa where we give you news from an African perspective. Now, South Africans will pay more for sugary drinks starting from April 1 this year. The country's finance minister, Malusi Gikaba, cemented news on a tax on sugar-sweetened beverages this week during his budget speech. Officially called the health promotion levy, the 11% tax aims to reduce South African sugar consumption and hopefully control the high rate of diabetes, heart disease, and other obesity-related diseases. To discuss it further, we are joined on the line by Tracy Malawana, spokesperson for the Healthy Living Alliance. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, Tracy. Hello, thank you so much for having me, and hello to listeners. What is this uh, tax on sugary drinks? So the so it's, it's the tax on sugary drinks. So uh, meaning that uh, um, you know sugary drinks will be taxed 
So drinks with sugar will be taxed. So if you buy maybe a Coca-Cola, which was, um, let's say, which was uh, maybe, let's say, 10 rand, you'll pay a bit more to um, pay, to buy that Coke, yeah. So it's simply a tax on sugary drinks, all the drinks with sugar. Um, and it's uh, coming into effect on the 1st of April. What uh, made the government do this? So um, in South Africa, we, yeah, we, we are faced with, um, you know, a crisis on, like, obesity. So most of women are obese and most of men are obese. So we have an obesity crisis. And um, as you might know, and also as uh, listeners might know, that uh, obesity is related to diseases like diabetes, uh, heart diseases, uh, you know, some cancers, and so forth. So um, one of the effective ways to um, reduce um, obesity rate is to, um, you know, introduce um, things like measures like uh, the sugary drinks tax. So um, one of the reasons to introduce that the sugary drinks tax is uh, because it has been proven in other countries that it does reduce uh, consumption because most of the things that contribute to obesity are sugary drinks and sugar intake. How has this tax been done up until now? So there have been parliamentary hearings. So uh, it was uh, first announced uh, in 2016's budget speech by the former uh, Minister of Finance, Pravin Kodan. And um, the whole of last year, we've been uh, part of the debates in Parliament around uh, the introduction of this um, sugary uh, drinks tax. So there's been, uh, you know, a lot of, like, consultation, net lag. Um, there's been consultation by the, you know, uh, votes by the National Assembly and also the National Council of Provinces. So there's been consultation, debate um, of, you know, introducing this uh, sugary drinks tax. And it was uh, signed into law or passed into law on the 14th of December by our um, former president, um, Mr. Jacob Zuma. And are there any disadvantages to this tax? Um, No, 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 no. There are no disadvantages. Um, we've, so there's like countries that already have this tax. There's a number of countries. One of them is Mexico. So um, I can say there are a lot of, you know, there are like advantages on like introducing this tax. For instance, now people are aware of, you know, what obesity is, non-communicable diseases, and they're also like health conscious and also conscious about what they eat and drink. So I'd say that they are, this tax is, an advantage in our country and uh, it's a good thing that it's happening now rather than you know five years from now yes. all right Tracy Malawana thank you very much thank you Tracy Malawana there's a spokesperson for Healthy Living Alliance South Africa now there's been mixed reaction to the 2018 budget speech delivered by South African Minister of Finance Malusi Gikaba the major talking point is the increase in the value added tax to by 1% to 15% to the assurance consultancy firm Grant Thornton says the increase in the VAT will negatively affect all South Africans more from director at Grant Thornton International Limited Hilton Cameron
So to me, I think the minister said it as well, it's going to be a tough year for everyone. So in terms of everyone, the big issue is, first of all, the increase in the VAT rate. So that's going to be pretty heavy on everyone. And then to me, at the same time, another sort of what we could call a consumption tax is an increase on the road accident levy and the general fuel levy by 52 cents per litre. So between those two, that's quite a big adjustment to everyone. Then there's the next issue of personal income tax rates. So normally what happens, what's happened for the last, I don't know, a long time, is the personal brackets for income tax, those increased to take into account inflation. So this year the three top brackets didn't increase and the two bottom brackets increased by 3%, which is less than inflation. So again, just due to inflation, everybody is going to be taking home less. So to me, those three factors are going to make it tougher for everyone. And in terms of the value-added tax, was it a must? Should it have been increased at this point? Was there no room for government to find funds elsewhere? In terms of finding funds elsewhere, I attended a seminar this morning, and according to one economist, if they managed to get rid of, to say, sort of state capture expenditure, in his view, there's $150 billion. I don't know where you got that number from, but in his view, there's $150 billion that we could save. So hopefully they are going to get rid of those sort of overexpenses and bring back some of that, and that would save a whole lot. So to come back to what else they could do, basically the big amounts are corporate income tax, individual tax, or VAT. So to me, they couldn't change the corporate tax rate because at 28%, we are already fairly high compared to sort of the BRIC countries and the global number. The income tax rate, you didn't increase, but you didn't change the bracket. So effectively, if we just take into inflation at 5%, so I think the recent rate was 45 they've already taken 4.5% from that and even 1.5% for the people on the lower scales. So that only really left that. So I think that was, on the VAT side, we are actually very low compared to most countries. So I think it had to be VAT. And in terms of the fuel levy, which you spoke about, is it a must that government must, on an annual basis, because it happens on an annual basis, that they increase this fuel levy? How will it impact the poor? Again, we go back to the question, was there no way that they could find um, a funds? Because uh, petrol prices will obviously go up and the taxi fares for the poor will go up and that will affect them negatively. They won't have enough money to spend for basics like food and, and clothing. In terms of the fuel levy and the road accident fund levy, they don't have to up. Unfortunately, they are going up. So, and that to me, that hits everyone. Obviously, it's the poor even probably even harder because increase the fuel levy, that increases everything from food to everything to transport, taking people around, as you say, to the food. So that's going to make things more expensive for everyone. And if you don't have much money to start with and you've now lost out additional funds, that really makes it more difficult. I said, you know, where else are they supposed to get funds from? That I can't answer in terms of the economics. The economists are better in a position to look at that. The one issue which, again, now is that a presentation is not a great scenario, is the expenditure on tertiary education. So obviously the government's now promised uh, first years that they can have the first year free. So expenditure on tertiary education went up, I think, by 8%, but expenditure on basic education actually went down. My view is if we can get basic education from grade one to matric, concentrate on that before we start trying to help people on tertiary education. So 
that tertiary education which was promised by the previous president, that put an extra burden and they had to find some funds for that. So I think that took away some options of the government. And overall, what do you make of the tax increases in the budget? To me, the big tax increases, I mean, there were a few sort of like donations tax increased for donations on more than 30 million. So there were a few, and then a state duty increased on if your state is worth more than 30 million. So those were sort of few, uh, if we can call it almost wealth taxes. So I don't think anyone's complaining about that. I mean, maybe if you've got more than 30 million, you might be, but unfortunately not in that position, so I can't talk about it. So those were the sort of the few wealth taxes that really came in, but all the other taxes, to me, are going to be hitting everyone. So the minister did say in terms of VAT, actually 85% of the VAT is paid by, I think, 15% of the population, just saying that it is actually going to hit the more wealthy than it's going to hit the more poor people. So, but... In saying that, if it, the poor people have uh, less funds to go around, so while it's wealthy, you might be paying more. If you don't have much money, uh, it's going to be more of a hit on you. It is 17.40 Central African time. That is Hilton Cameron, director at the assurance consultancy firm Grant Thornton International Limited, on the line with Tuto Ngobeni. A Southern African umbrella organization, Lefair Trade Independent Tobacco Association, FITA, says South African law enforcement agencies have paid very little attention to ongoing allegations of gross corruption by the world's second largest cigarette maker, British American Tobacco. FITA says it has attempted a number of times over the years to bring these allegations made by its members to the attention of the public, but nothing has become of them. The organization says it is in possession of evidence of corrupt activities by BAT that includes industrial espionage, corruption, tax evasion, money laundering, and anti-competitive practices. The organization says it recently instructed its attorneys to engage directly with the South African Directorate for Priority Crime Investigation Unit, the National Prosecuting Authority, and the South African Revenue Service. BAT is currently a subject of Britain and Europe's serious fraud investigation. Peter Sherperson the local South African tobacco manufacturers that make up the membership of FITA and who comprise of all the major local manufacturers have been, have been having a devil of a time in exposing the misdeeds of multinational tobacco manufacturers. Um, for reasons unknown to FITA, neither the media nor our law enforcement agencies seem to have an appetite to pursue and expose credible cases of corruption, fraud, money laundering, racketeering, which implicate primarily British American Tobacco and the Tobacco Institute of Southern Africa. Naturally, you will understand that we must treat such with caution and care not to endanger the lives of witnesses or, the, or risk the destruction of evidence. Nevertheless, we can confirm that we have undeniable evidence which demonstrates our BAT, their private investigative arm, FSS and TISA, paid bribes to over 170 people in South Africa over several years for commercially sensitive information on their competitors, many being our members, which is FITA members. The evidence comes in the form of witness statements, insiders who have provided testimony, proof of payments by way of dates, times, and places, and who made these payments, audio recordings, video and photographic evidence, and documentary evidence. The evidence is not limited to bribery and money laundering transactions in South Africa, but extends to other African countries and the United Kingdom. 
By way of example, we have proof of payments made in the United Kingdom into an anonymous cash card account and subsequent cash withdrawal slips from various ATMs in South Africa. We also have evidence implicating high-ranking officials in the Hawks, Crime Intelligence, State Security Agency, National Prosecuting Authority and the South African Revenue Service who are aware of and active participants in these practices. Now, in the absence of this appetite that you allude to to investigate these practices, FITA has instructed its attorneys to register criminal complaints with the South African Police Services and the Hawks. You've laid complaints, again, we understand, with law enforcement agencies in the UK. Can you just tell us how that is playing out so far? Look, like I indicated earlier, there is there does seem to be a reluctance on the side of law enforcement agencies to prosecute these matters. And, you know, we are indeed trying to drive them. At a stage, we had, you, you would have noted in the media that in, in late 2016, British American Tobacco had announced some sort of an internal commission of inquiry or investigation to all of these allegations. And we had thought maybe we should allow that process to ventilate itself. And based on the outcomes of that, take it from there. But you'll note that some two years later, there's been no outcome from from that um, investigate, internal investigation. That's the chairperson of the Fair Trade Independent Tobacco Association, Snetlant Lamguni, talking to Selina Ndobong. At a time we went on air, British American Tobacco was not available to comment. It is 17.45 Central African time. Here's Usani Matebula with your economics. Thanks, Pumilele. Good evening. Uh, Chad has signed a deal with Glencoe to restructure more than a billion US dollars in debt in an agreement that will help the African nation to avoid a financial crunch. Under the terms of the agreement, the loan's maturity is ex- extended to 12 years, while Chad will receive a grace period of two years. The rate on the loan is also reduced to the benchmark LIBO interest rate plus 2%, while Glencoe will guarantee the supply of oil for Chad's domestic refining requirements for the duration of the contract. Glencoe and its banks agreed in late 2015 to restructure two oil-for-cash loans with Chad dating from 2013 and 2014, extending the repayment to seven years from an initial four years. Glencoe initially lent the African country 600 million US dollars in 2013 through a so-called prepayment export deal. Meanwhile, Burkina Faso is looking for a new partner to mine the world's largest manganese deposits after rights disputes blocked two earlier attempts to develop a billion-dollar project. Pan-African Minerals, a unit of timers mining, was told to stop production at the Tambao mine in 2015 following a change in leadership in the West African nation. The company then petitioned the International Court of Arbitration in Paris to prevent its permit from being withdrawn, but the case is still pending. With an estimated reserves of 100 million metric tons, the Tambao mine is the world's largest resource of manganese.
The South African Finance Minister Malusi Gigaba has reiterated the importance of understanding the circumstances which led to government increasing VAT, fuel levies and personal income tax. He says this was done in order to strengthen public finances, stabilize debt and narrow budget deficit. Gigaba dismissed the views that the budget is anti-poor due to increase in VAT, saying that the budget must be viewed in totality. Gigaba says government had no choice but to take tough decisions for now. The preliminary view is that we did well. The preliminary view is that there's no big things that they are are questioning in our views. It's things on the margins and they understand, but they understand that out of a tough environment, we came out better than we came out in in October. And that's something that I think the the committee and and, and everyone listening should, should know, that... The preliminary view is that we are far much better in their eyes from where we were in October. An Egyptian company has introduced 65 electric car charging stations across the Arab world's most populous country, giving commuters a chance to opt for clean energy. The stations were developed by which uh, has been starting the move and the necessary infrastructure since 2015. The company launched the stations in February in its first round and plans to reach about 300 stations by 2020. Each station costs 39000 to US dollars to manufacture. While the prices of electric cars are still much more expensive than regular fuel-operated vehicles, Revolta has plans with the Egyptian Trade Ministry to ease the financial burden of buying Teslas and Hyundais, making them more affordable for mass production. And the Greek parliament has voted to investigate 10 prominent politicians, including two former prime ministers, over allegations of bribery by a Swiss pharmaceutical company. During a 19-hour debate, the current prime minister, Alexis Tsipras, promised to get to the bottom of the scandal. We won't help cover up, conceal or bury one of the biggest scandals in modern Greek history because the Greek people have the right and they demand to have everything come to light and to learn the truth, to learn what happened during the years of prosperity and how certain people handled the country's bankruptcy. The dollar at 11.69, South African rands at 9.37, Botswana Pula and 9.78, Zambian Kwacha, also trading at 71 pence to the British pound and 81 cents against the euro. Commodities gold is at $1,326 and platinum at $993 per fine ounce. Brent crude oil is down at $64.65 per barrel. That's your economics news. Seventeen fifty Central African time. Thank you very much. It's an instant for sports news. Here's Musibudi Makura.
Good evening, sports fans, and starting off with football news, Desiree Ellis has finally been confirmed as Banyana Banyana's new head coach after spending close to 18 months as a caretaker coach. This was confirmed at a press conference at Safa House earlier today. Ellis takes over from Dutch-born Vera Powell, whom she had deputized for two and a half years before her departure after the Rio Olympic Games two years ago. Safa President Dr. Denis Jordan announced Ellis as her first Banyana Banyana player to be appointed on a full-time basis. Of course... Uh the national team players, but more importantly, uh, we have Desiree Ellis here who was uh, started as a Banyana player, a Banyana interim coach, and today uh, we have to inform you that uh, we have taken a decision to announce uh, today Desiree Ellis as the head coach of Banyana Banyana. Very happy. Uh, we will see all of our national teams now have women coaches. A happy Desiree Ellis says she's always dreamed of becoming head coach of the national team. Thank you, Mr. President. You know, a few months ago, I think it was in October last year, um, my sister and I had a conversation, and uh, my sister said to, you, to me, Do you know your university today? And I said, uh, Yes, I do. And what was so surreal about that month was that. When I got appointed as the interim coach, we played from the, our first camp was from the 16th to the 22nd. And a year later, the exact dates, the 16th to the 22nd, different opponents though. So it can't get more surreal than being appointed the national team head coach. Because, you know, I've always dreamt of playing for the national team. And then it becomes a dream of being the national coach. And um, it's become a reality now. Well, the mandate is clear for Ellis. Qualify Banyana Banyana for the FIFA Women's World Cup next year in France by finishing in the top three at this year's Africa Women's Championships in, um, Championships in Ghana. Now, Jordan explains that it doesn't end there. So, we have to tell Desiree, as we announce it today as a coach, the path is clear. First, we must qualify for AFCON in Ghana in, in 2018 uh, in December. The top three teams from uh, African Cup of Nations uh, in Ghana qualify for the World Cup on the 7th of June to the 7th of July 2019 next year in France. We want to qualify for that World Cup. And when they come back in 2019 in July, we start working for the Olympics in Tokyo, Japan uh, in 2020. So there are three targets. It's the African Cup of Nations, it's World Cup, and it's the Olympics in 2020. Banyana Banyana depart for Cyprus tomorrow for the Cyprus Cup. They will play their first match on Wednesday, the 28th of February against Slovakia. The other nations in their group, which is Group C, are Korea DPR as well as Hungary.
And finally in rugby news, Philip Sneeman is back from injury and will yet again spearhead the Springbok Sevens effort next weekend in Las Vegas when they contest a round five of the World Rugby Sevens Series. Sneeman, one of only six South Africans to play in 50 World Rugby Sevens Series tournaments, missed the previous tournament in Hamilton, New Zealand earlier this month due to a hamstring injury but is ready for the trip to North America. Three other experienced players are also Nevada-bound Kyle Brown, who has played 62 tournaments, Bronco Dupree 57 tournaments, while Cecil Africa has played 55 tournaments, and all will provide the team with the backbone of experience in Las Vegas, where outside back Mula Duplessis could potentially make his uh, Blitzborker debut. Well, those are sports news at the South. Stay tuned to Channel Africa for more news from an African perspective. This is Africa Digest. Seventeen fifty-five Central African time. Let's recap our top stories. The British government issues a travel warning to its citizens following what it says is a potential terror activity in South Africa. Nigerian authorities continue to look for girls who were abducted by Boko Haram insurgents. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. For myself, Spumela Lezondi, producer Luyanda Maome, technical producer Wiseman Mangwaele, and the rest of the Africa Digest team. Thank you very much for listening. You can send us emails. We are on info at chinaafrica.co.za. On Twitter, it is Channel Africa One, and on SMS, plus two seven eight two three three two five nine zero five plus two seven eight two three three two five nine zero five one SMS. We leave you with Stay Shining by Ricky Rick Kespanovest and Professor. I'm singing for money
Come on, Timmy, get